All right, let's get back into this. I'm Diana, and this is Time Punked. So last week, I kind of gave an introduction to what this project is, um, that this is a this is a project, a history research project based, centered on social movements and social justice issues in certain time periods. Um, and I'm doing this by creating a punk jacket as we understand it today, but also the aesthetic of the time period that I'm choosing. The first one that I'm starting with, I mentioned was suffrage punk. Um, so this is turn of the century. The aesthetic, the archetype that we're, that I'm working with is uh, like the Gibson girl and the new woman. Um, I'm looking at, at people like Lillian Gish uh, for aesthetic inspiration. Uh, and, and the patches and pins that I am putting on this jacket are all about things like women's suffrage and machine politics and trust busting. So important issues to our society at that time. Now, those those archetypes that I'm talking about, Gibson Girl, New Woman, those are specifically American archetypes. Uh, the, there are similar fights going on across the globe, um, but I'm going to focus specifically on American politics for this. Um, I'm an American. Most of what I know is American politics. Um, so I'm going to focus on that for at least this project. We'll talk about other places and other, other societal issues uh, in later projects. Um, I'm going to start this, this project out with probably what is the most obvious social issue, uh, seeing as how I'm calling this suffrage punk, we're going to talk about women's suffrage. Um, I'm going to try to keep Gen 1 brief so that I can really focus on Gen 2 of the women's suffrage movement. Um, I, I really want to focus on turn of the century, but there is a lot of information to know before we get to that point. Um, so I'm going to start off with the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention. Uh, this happened in July 1848. It was organized by a woman named Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She uh, she invited a woman named Lucretia Mott, who was a popular, uh, a really popular speaker at the time, to come in and start talking about women's rights. The women are really focused on just saying saying what needs to be said that. Women are treated like shit. Nobody listens to them. They basically don't legally exist. Um, they they are taking they are taking to the public what everybody knows in private. Um, so one of the things that comes from this convention is the Declaration of Sentiments um, or the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments. And uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton really focuses on the Declaration of Independence, you know, the one from 1776. And uh, the, the line everybody knows is, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, certain inalienable, inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Well, she takes that line and she adds two words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Now that that in and of itself, that alone is it's radical. When you're talking about the mid 19th century, that's radical. Uh, that women are not equal to men at this time, and very few people thought that they should be. Um, at least 
powerful people anyway. Um, they go on and, and have this list of sentiments uh, that they are that they're upset about things that men are doing or, or not doing um, that have, have caused problems for women. So we're talking things like they don't have the right to vote because men won't let them. Or it, when she gets married, she ceases to exist civilly. Um, things like she can't, no matter how hard she works, all of her money that she makes goes straight to him. She does not actually have any property of her own, including money. There's a lot of issues here, and I, I, full, I highly recommend going and taking a look at those sentiments. A lot of them still apply. It's been, oh, 170 years since then, and we're still dealing with it. Cool. American society, man, we're just doing real well with that, that whole freedom thing. Um, so Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I want to come back to her. She was a racist bitch. She was important. She did a lot of good things. She laid the foundation for a lot of things that we have today. A lot of the rights that we have today. Um, I am thankful for that, but she was a racist bitch. Um, right about the end of the Civil War um, and, and right after the end of the Civil War, there was this really big national debate about, about suffrage. So there's, there's these millions of people that are now legally people. And while they're a part of our society and being part of the society means being civilly engaged, being in civilly enfranchised, not just engaged, but allowed to be a part of our society and making decisions. Um, so when they're talking about enfranchising Black men, there's also this discussion about whether whether we should enfranchise just Black men or all Black men and all women. Or do, are black men smart enough to handle the responsibility of being a voter? With most of, most of those folks being illiterate, are they really capable of being civilly engaged? Some really, really shitty arguments happening here. Um, but th those, those same conversations, those same questions are being asked of women. Um, now, where Stanton's racism really comes to a head is when it becomes pretty obvious that it's going to be um, Black men only that are going to be enfranchised, that women are going to be excluded from the, the amendment that, that says that Black men are going to be allowed to vote, that you can't discriminate against someone based on the color of their skin. Um, Stanton starts to undermine the suffrage movement, um, basically, if if I can't have it, nobody can, um, which is really, really shitty. Um, and she starts really vocally asking those questions. You know, how can how can somebody who can't read or write possibly be a good enough and mo and well informed citizen to be voting? I mean, how can you allow women? code for white women, read white women. How can you allow women who have been socially engaged to, to sit unenfranchised in our society and allow 
black men to be enfranchised. Um, she's, it's pretty shitty. And uh, I, I really dislike her for that. Um, one of the other names that kind of gets wrapped up in that, in that argument is Susan B. Anthony. Um, she's probably the, the biggest name, at least today, that we know from the Gen 1 suffrage movement. Um, she, she's on a coin. I think it's a, I think it's a dollar coin. Um, there's a statement that, that gets circulated a lot, um, of hers. Um, she said she would sooner cut off her right arm before she would ever work for or demand the ballot for the black man and not the woman. Now I'm a white woman. I'm going to, going to put that out right up front. There is, there's a, a good chance that I am overlooking something or that I am misreading this statement. Um, but I have always taken the statement to mean this is not an either or fight. It's a both. You can't make me choose one or the other because it has to be both. It's not an undermining one or the other. It's a, if we can't have we can't pick just one. We have to do it all at one time. It needs to be universal suffrage. And it's not, there is no not option. It has to be universal suffrage, period. And we need to work for all of it together. Um, Frederick Douglass, who um, was was born a slave um, and really really big in the abolition abolitionist movement, um, but also really involved in the women's rights movement and the women's suffrage movement. He really began pushing for black male suffrage and for women to wait. This is, this is politically logical. It is probably the most expedient choice. Um, it, it will be easier to get men the vote pretty much any population of men, the vote before any population of women. And I understand the logic, but I think it's shitty. I hate it, but I understand it. And, th and that's kind of a theme that we'll see throughout the women's suffrage movement. And, and honestly, with any human rights movement where it affects multiple populations, right? Not just, not just all women, you know, but men and women or different races or different religions. A theory that we talk about a lot in today's world of uh, intersectionality, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw came up with this theory. Uh, she coined the phrase in 1989. Each of, mar each of the marginalized populations experience oppression in a unique way, right? The way that Black people experience oppression will be different than the way that women experience oppression. But there is this place where they intersect, where they meet up, that those unique styles of oppression compound and twist into something different even. Um, it's, it's a really interesting theory to look at, and it's, it really helps to, to take this, these ideas about classism and racism and and sexism and all of that and and show where they intercept each other at, at certain junctures um 
there's a, another abolitionist and women's rights activist named Sojourner Truth. And, and she, she was a black woman who was born into slavery. Um, and, and, and she says, walked out in, in broad daylight away from slavery. Uh, there was an organization that she was able to go to who bought her freedom. The phrase is so shitty. Um, one of the things she talks about is that slaves are seen as men and women are seen as white. So black women basically don't exist in this argument. Um, emancipated slaves that are getting the vote are men and women are fighting for the vote, but you really only see white women. Um, and she, she does this, she makes a speech um, that's the, we know today as the anti a woman speech. Uh, and she talks about how, you know, the men are talking about how the women need to be helped into carriages and carried over ditches and be held in this place of honor. And she's like, I, I'm not being helped into carriages or being held in any place of honor. I was out in the fields planting and, and plowing and gathering just as much as the men were. I was taking the lashes just as much as the men were, but I'm a woman. Look at me. Aren't I a woman? I, I had 13 kids and watched most of them sold into slavery. And it didn't matter how much I was crying with mother's grief to anybody but Jesus. Um, and I, ain't I a woman? So she's, she's trying to show that she deserves just as much a place in women's rights movement as any of these white women. Now, there are a couple of other interesting social movements that are intersecting at this point. I've, I've talked a little bit about how a lot of the folks who were involved in the women's rights movement were also involved in the abolitionist movement, um, which... I mean, that makes perfect sense why those two might go together. Uh, but there's another one that isn't necessarily as obvious, um, and that's the, the temperance movement. The temperance movement, as we understand it today, um, in, in its most modern form, uh, really started out in Ohio. Ohio was really a bastion of of temperance, um, of, of avoiding alcohol or consuming it in moderation, at least. Um, that, and of course it was Ohio. Of course it was fucking Ohio. But this, this idea was was really kind of popping up individually a little bit of all over the states. Um, but we're talking about the 1830s. It, it gained some popularity then, but by the, the Civil War, it kind of taken all of the attention away from temperance. And uh, if anything, war drives people to drink for understandable reasons. Um, so after the Civil War, right about right about the same time as we're starting to see more more suffrage conversations and more temper or more women's rights conversations temperance comes back up again and it's and it's brought to the forefront partly as a a women's rights issue um, a lot of a lot of folks in temperance communities were saying things like men are getting drunk and spending all of the the family's money and and again, at the time, women didn't have money. They didn't own property. They legally couldn't own any of those things. Um, so if a man decided to go take the entire family's paycheck and spend it on booze, then so be it. That's his right as a man. Um, also, you know, 
men were getting really drunk and coming home and beating their children and their wives. Um, they were setting a bad example for their children. And how, how can a woman raise virtuous children if they have an example like that? So clearly the solution is just to, to ban alcohol entirely because moderation, the moderation advocates weren't, uh, weren't being as successful. So they, they started talking about abolishing all sales of alcohol. Uh, and this, this actually becomes relevant, really relevant to the, to the suffrage movement still again in Gen 2 of the women's rights and suffrage movement. I, I want to make this statement before we really delve into the turn of the century Gen 2 women's suffrage movement. Um, when I was growing up and I was learning about the women's suffrage movement, even all the way through high school and even into college, I did not really appreciate the kind of efforts that the women put in for for the vote. Um, I was under the impression that it was a bunch of protests and pickets and that eventually the men finally gave them the vote. I was sorely mistaken. Um, it's one of the reasons why I started this project is because I realized I didn't know enough about how votes for women came through. Um, it is not that I didn't, that I lacked respect for these folks or that I had taken the vote for granted. I am well aware of, of how easy it is for someone to lose the right to vote and especially women. Um, we were deprived of it for so long. Um, I have always appreciated it and I have voted in every election that I have been able to since I turned 18. But I did not truly appreciate the the way that the movement was conducted and the way that these, these folks were treated. Um, people died. People were people ended up with severe health problems that they had to deal with for the rest of their lives. Um, but I'm going to start with probably my favorite figure from the turn of the century, the Gen 2 women's suffrage movement here. Uh, Alice Paul is someone that I, I really invested a lot of time, research time into. She is someone I hadn't ever heard of, really. Like, I'd heard the name maybe once or twice, um, but I didn't know anything about her and I didn't know how she was relevant. Not many people at the time knew her name. They knew what she did. They knew what she was involved in. She was really good at, at publicity stunts. She was a Quaker. There's a kind of a through line there with a lot of a lot of these social movements. A lot of them, there are a lot of Quakers involved. And if they're not started by Quakers, Quakers take it up very quickly. One of the core tenets of Quaker beliefs is that everyone is equal in the eyes of God. That's why you see a lot of Quakers involved in abolition societies, why you see a lot of Quakers involved in, in the women's rights movement. Um, this is part of their, the central part of their religion. Um, and so it is not at all surprising that Alice Paul um, is, is a Quaker. She really got involved in the women's rights movement when she was living in England, um, going to college there. Now, it's not that she didn't know about the women's rights movement. She'd been going to, to meetings and such with her mom for years. Uh, she was growing up. But she got wrapped up in it in England by, by hearing the Pankhurst talk. The Pankhursts were, were a mother and daughter duo. And we're not 
shy nor particularly peaceful <laughs> about their methods to get the vote. Um, they were not they were perfectly willing to break windows and chalk sidewalks, which for some reason was illegal at the time. Whatever. Um, they were not afraid to go and, and shout on street corners and, and really take people to task for making sure that they knew that rights for women is important. And if you're not going to give it to us the, the nice way, we're going to make you and it ain't going to be pretty. Alice Paul really got involved with that. Um, it was it was in England where she was arrested for the first time, and where she went on a hunger strike for the first time. A hung, hunger strikes became kind of a, a hallmark of the women's rights movement, and that's another thing I did not appreciate enough before I really started into this research. Is is the hunger striking? It it is more than just fasting. These women were frequently force-fed um and i don't i don't know how many of you know about force feeding in this way um they take a, a tube and they rubber or glass and they stick it up either your nose or down your throat um and they feed you milk and raw eggs they just funnel it into this hose and into your stomach it is painful it is damaging to physically. Um, I can't imagine what kind of damaging it must be emotionally, psychologically. Alice Paul was force-fed when she was in England three times a day for several days um, before she was released from prison. And that, whew, I can't even begin to imagine. And, th and that was just the first time that she did it. She would continue to do this repeatedly. When she got back to the States and when she started organizing here in the States, she it wasn't just her either. There was a lot of folks who were doing exactly this. If they were sentenced to a jail term after they got arrested for picketing or protesting or whatever, if it was more than a couple of days, a lot of women would go on a hunger strike. Um, and a lot of them were force-fed. That's, that's a hell of a thing to go through, to volunteer to go through. And I certainly appreciate them a lot more for it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that they went through in jail. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about a couple of other people. I want to talk about Ida B. Wells. She's going to get a whole episode to herself uh, next week. But Ida B. Wells was probably the most prominent African-American activist, at least female activist of the turn of the century. Um, she was a journalist who spent a lot of time writing particularly about anti-lynching. That was the thing that she was known really well known for. But she was also really involved in the women's suffrage movement, and she helped to organize a lot of, of um, colored women's suffrage groups uh, around the country. And she was, at the time that she was living in Illinois, is when all of this really starts to come to a head, um, when they start organizing parades, when they start organizing picket lines and all of that stuff. Um, in 1913, Alice Paul organizes the, at the time, the biggest suffrage parade. She gets people from every state. At the time, there were 48. She gets people from every state um, to come out and and be in the parade to march for women's suffrage. There were floats. There were bands. There was Inez Milholland, who was who was considered the prettiest suffragist. She rode a white horse and dressed up as and was the parade marshal. And so it was this big affair, this huge affair. 
when this parade went off or was getting ready to to start, Ida B. Wells was in the Illinois delegation. Um, Women had been given the the right to vote there very recently, um, at least in certain elections. And uh, she was with the Illinois delegation. Originally, Alice Paul had reached out to her and wanted her to be a prominent part of the parade. But there were a lot of women in the D.C. area where Paul was working that approached her and said, look, if you have a black woman, part like prominent part of the movement, you're going to lose a lot of white women because, you know, racism. Um, and so she had to make this decision about what to do. She'd already reached out to Wells. She, she wanted her to be there. She wanted there, her to be a part of this. And the decision that she made here ended up being the decision that she stuck with for the rest of her career in women's suffrage movement. She she made the decision to not have Wells be a prominent part of the parade, but she would not disallow African-American women to, to be in the parade. So it was mostly a, you can be there, but I'm not endorsing it kind of thing. I, in much the same way that Frederick Douglass um, encouraged the, the vote for Black men over the votes for women, because he thought it would it would go through faster. That's that's a very similar situation here. It is politically logical. Is it shitty? Yeah. That's a very hard decision to make, and I don't envy her that decision. I do appreciate that at the very least, she did not disallow African-American women from being involved in, in the protests and the pickets and the, the parades. As, later on, there would be quite a few African-American women involved in in the pickets at the White House, um, including a woman named Mary Church Terrell. She was she was a pretty prominent African-American women's suffrage activist. So, yeah, Wells ended up there with the Illinois delegation at the 1913 parade. Now, one of the women in that delegation asked her not to march with them, to go march with the colored women's section. Wells flat out said no. Why? Why would I? I'm from Illinois. I'm helping to to organize suffrage organizations here. Why in the hell would I not march with Illinois? And you know the answer is racism. Because if you march with us, then the white women won't march with us. And you know, and she was she was really blown off. Uh, and Wells was walked off. She says, you know, if you don't, if I'm not allowed to march now, you won't get any of us, any of the, the African-American women in Illinois, like we will, (laughs) you snub us now, we're all gone. That's just the way this is going to work. Nobody saw her at the, at the beginning of the parade, but by the middle of the parade, by the point at which thousands of men, men who, who break down the, the ropes that are lining the street to keep everybody back and safe. They started um, rushing into the streets and attacking women and tearing down banners. And it got nasty. It got real nasty real quick. And the cops, in true cop style, did effectively nothing. Eventually, they got it under control and got the crowd back and back on the sidewalks, and the parade went on. But for for a little bit there, there it was it was hairy. Um, we weren't quite sure how how that was going to end up. By that point in the parade, Wells was in the in the Illinois delegation. Nobody's quite sure how it happened. Whether she whether 
the other women in the delegation changed their mind, whether she snuck in during the chaos. Nobody's really sure, but Ida B. Wells was in the Illinois delegation during that march. Those white ladies get fucked. Um, one of the other people I want to mention is Carrie Chapman Cat. Cat and Paul were really big rivals during this time. Paul was really much more was much more radical, much more militant. Um, and Kat was much more of a let's work within the system and get this process done kind of thing. She spent many, 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 many years, um, decades of her life working for this. Um, and she worked really hard for this organizing and, you know, organizing protests and letter writing campaigns and, and petitions and all kinds of things. I will say right now, and I believe this to be true, regardless of, of the movement, you need both because the more radical militant side makes the folks who work within the system look really good and they look like the best alternative, you know, because if we don't do it this way with the legislation that the, these ladies are talking about, then we're going to get these women with their, their marches and their banners and their embarrassing, embarrassing signs. We don't want any more of that. So we're going to go with the nice within the system legislative way. Because you need people to to do the grinding work from within the system, and you need people outside of the system to push it. Um, those are they're both very important parts of the movement, regardless of what movement you're talking about. I mentioned Cat for another reason. Um, as a queer woman, there is not nearly enough queer history out there. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, some of it is just that it's not the language that they would have used at the time. Queer is a very self-identifying label. All of the, the labels are self-identifying. It is really difficult to put those labels onto people who didn't even know they existed, um, had no concept of them. That being said, Carrie Chapman Cat had been married twice. But by the time that she really got involved in the women's suffrage movement, she had been, she was on her own. Um, I think both of her husbands died. And another woman that was really involved in, in the movement was a woman named Mary Garrett Hay. They lived together for over 35 years and they worked together and they were buried next to each other. When Kat died, she insisted that her and Mary Hay were buried together. She wasn't buried with either of her two husbands, but with Mary. Um, and their headstone says something about, um, you know, 30-something years of, of true friendship. You know, just, just gals being pals. They were roommates. Um, and actually, in a lot of modern sources, they, they are listed as partners, um, which, again, is, as a queer woman who studies history, she means a whole lot to me in that regard it more of that we need more more queer history more explicitly queer history so to come back to the kind of protests and and pickets that were happening uh, to make to make all of this happen so i talked about the 1913 parade that was a big deal that happened the day before woodrow wilson was inaugurated for his first term so kind of an auspicious way to start your term, right? Just in the right after a huge women's suffrage protest. But yeah, um, 
he was actually, there was like nobody at the train station to welcome him to DC when he showed up. He was, he was kind of disappointed. He figured he was going to get some fanfare, but no, all of the cops were down with the protest, trying to make sure that, well, trying to make sure everything was safe, you know, ignoring the downright assaults that were happening, whatever. Um, you know, and, and Wilson was, was pretty disappointed that he didn't get the, the reception that he thought he would get as the new president. And while his inauguration went off normally, um, it was really overshadowed by that parade. Now, Alice Paul did a lot of groundbreaking organization during this time. So she organized a lot more protests. Um, she organized a lot of women to go out and stand on street corners and, and give talks about why women should have the right to vote. She put together a, a newspaper or, or like a magazine called The Suffragist. And she, she helped to publish that. She organized um, delegations of women to, to go and talk to senators and other legislators. Um, at first, she started doing this under under the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, um, and she was given permission to start this this the Congressional Union, um, the CU within the, within NASA. And at the time that this was happening, right after the 1913 parade, so 1914, 1915, um, NASA is really focused on getting individual state mandates for women's rights. They're not; they don't think they're going to get a federal amendment. They're really going to focus on each individual state. And this worked a little bit. There was nine states out West, including Nevada. Hey, one of my former home states, they, they let women vote. Um, Wyoming was the first. Let me put that out there. Wyoming, way to go. But almost no, nobody back East, actually nobody back East. The closest state was Illinois once they let women vote. So nobody back East was letting women vote for any reason. Um, and this, this was a problem. Um, Carrie Chapman was, was really trying to organize a lot of those, those state by state mandates, those pressuring local legislators and local, you know, local officials to, to support it. But Alice Paul really thought that they should go for something bigger, something more permanent than a state by state, uh, mandate. She wanted a federal amendment. So she had gotten permission to start the CU as long as she funded it herself, you know, or found a way to fund it herself. NASA wasn't going to give them any money. And so they start, she starts fundraising and she starts organizing and she start and she's doing all of these, these things in the DC area, really lobbying all of the, the legislators they can get to at this point. Um, and one of the most interesting things that she does, something that's really um, novel at the time, is she starts compiling information about each of these legislators, what their opinion was now, what what the result of this this petitioning, who they were sleeping with, who they were going out with, who they were meeting with, off the books. You know, so that kind of information, I don't want to say blackmail information, but you know, it's certainly not bad information to have. Um and they kept this in this this really primitive database, kind of like a card catalog. Um so there were these long boxes and each legislator had their own section. When when NASA sees how much the CU is doing and how much money they're raising and and how successful they are being on their own, NASA gets kind of jealous 
they start competing with each other um, to the point where Paul was removed as the head of the CU at one point, and then um, they they eventually split off into separate organizations. And NASA went their own way with their state mandates, and Paul went her way with a bunch of other folks to start pushing for a federal federal amendment. There is merits to both of these approaches. Smaller smaller battles seem easier to win. States' rights was a really big deal at this point. The Civil War was not that far far gone. Um, and states' rights is a big deal. States' rights are not the reason that the Civil War was fought after the war. Um, that whole lost cause myth, the, the idea of states' rights was really central to that myth. Um, and so it really, really popped up at this time. People were really hesitant to, to change the Constitution. There'd been a handful, you know, they'd recently changed the, the Voting Rights Amendment. But the federal approach was going to be much more difficult, especially considering that the South was very much against universal suffrage. By this point, they had already started implementing Jim Crow laws like um, poll taxes and uh, reading tests and that kind of thing to vote. Now, if you enfranchised women, they would really have to go back and revisit their enfranchisement of black men. And they didn't want to, to do that fight. <laughs> because they're racist and a bunch of white supremacists and who boy. Um, one of the biggest antagonists in this story is fucking Woodrow Wilson. I fucking fucking hate Woodrow Wilson. Like, okay. I'm getting to at least a nuanced view on Woodrow Wilson, but I fucking hate Woodrow Wilson. Um, and this, this episode is part of why, um, he didn't think that women should have the right to vote, that they were capable of being the kind of citizen that should have the vote. Um, he actively worked against it for a really long time. It wasn't until it wasn't until the U.S. entered into World War One, or was coming up to the entrance of World War One, right at the end of 1916, 1917, that he really started to kind of loosen up. He was fine with women voting, but he didn't want to do anything on the federal level. Everything should be left up to the states. Each He was very much a states' rights proponent. And there there is a constitutional argument for that. Uh, that being said, Woodrow Wilson was from the South and he was a white supremacist and fuck him for that. And he just, he really didn't want to fuck with that, especially with the South. Um, didn't want to deal, didn't want to have to deal with, with enforcing that on a national level. Now, it took Woodrow Wilson a long time, and it was a long fight to get Woodrow Wilson to even agree to publicly support women's suffrage. Uh, and one of the ways that the suffragists were able to get Woodrow Wilson to finally support it publicly were these the pickets that they were doing. This is the first time there has ever been a protest in front of the White House. So starting in, in 1917, they the silent sentinels start sen setting up outside of the White House with these banners. The women would just stand there, completely silent, you know, kind, kind of like the Buckingham Palace guards, um, but with banners that said things like, we demand an amendment to the United States Constitution enfranchising women, or Mr. President, what will you do for women? How long must women wait for freedom? 
um, some some really like provocative stuff. Uh, people really thought this was unpatriotic. People thought this was was an affront to America, especially considering this is around the same time as the war. There were a lot of people that would go in and jeer at them, especially once the war effort really got going. Um, there were a number of assaults uh, by lay people, and again, cops doing what cops do, just watched. And then, you know, once there were altercations, they would arrest the women, not the people that were assaulting them. So, you know, it's cops being cops. During this time of pickets is, is something called the Night of Terror. At this point in time, um, several women were arrested and sentenced to several months in Occoquan workhouse um, just outside of D.C., the workhouse was was a jail, and it was every bit as awful as you can imagine a workhouse to be. Bad food. When I say bad food, I mean quite literally often rotting or sour. <laughs> beds that were barely beds. Insect infestations, the whole night. So when these women were brought to the workhouse on this night, they refused to go through booking. They wouldn't put on the prison uniforms. They, they refused to do anything. The superintendent ended up coming in with a bunch of guards and um, beating the women. Um, there, there was one woman who was, who was basically thrown over an iron table a couple of times. She was knocked unconscious. Um, another woman who was in there and watched this uh, ended up having a heart attack from the stress but was not given any medical treatment until the next day. Um, she survived that night. Lucy Burns, who is a name I haven't mentioned up until now, but has been heavily involved in all of these protests and has kind of been Alice Paul's right-hand confidant and the person who Paul would turn to if she needed something really tough done. She was involved with this. She was beaten. At one point, she was chained with her arms above the door, so she had to stand all night with her arms chained above her. And one of the other women stood the same way in solidarity, bless her. Um, there's even a story of one of the suffragists being thrown into the men's cells and the men being told to do with her as they wish. All of these women survived the Night of Terror. At the very least, they all survived. It still took another two years of protesting on in D.C. to even get a federal amendment through. One of my favorite banners that they had at a protest said this, We protest against the continued disenfranchisement of American women for which the President of the United States is responsible. We condemn the President and his party for allowing the obstruction of suffrage in the Senate. We deplore the weakness of President Wilson in permitting the Senate to line itself with the Prussian Reichstag by denying democracy to the people. We demand that the President and his party secure the passage of the suffrage amendment through the Senate in the present session. That is some quality shade. Fuck you, Wilson. Fuck you. You ain't got the balls to do it. What What are you going to do about it? What, what are you going to do? You going to arrest us for telling you we ain't got the balls? Come on. Do something about it then, huh? These these protests were were internationally embarrassing for Wilson, especially during the peace process for World War I, uh, because he would say lots of things about self-determination and, and self-governing and liberty and democracy. And the, the women here in the States were like, 
I see here what you said about uh, making the world safe for democracy. Bitch, half the country isn't part of the democracy. Uh, one of the protests they asked set up urns to, to, to have a fire in and then read off some of the points from his speeches and then burn them. <laughs> Talk about provocative. The, the final push for votes for women is some of the most dramatic shit I have ever seen in my life. They finally, once they finally got the amendment through the House and through the Senate, and it took a hot minute to get it through the Senate. They sent the amendment out to all of the states. There were 48 of them. Now, an amendment needs three quarters of the states to approve it in order for it to become part of the Constitution. Um, So they needed 36 states. Now, as each state ratified the Constitution, Alice Paul would stitch on a star onto a suffrage banner. A bunch of them ratified it right away. No problem. And then they get stuck. They expect that Delaware is going to be the last one to to ratify the amendment. Um, but they're a bunch of dickbags, and they didn't. So then it gets comes down to Tennessee. They did not expect to have to go to the South and really campaign there. Because, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws. They didn't figure anybody was going was gonna to go through with it there. So they end up in Tennessee. They get the amendment through the House, the Tennessee House. It takes a little while to get to the Senate. In the Senate, you just need a simple majority. They are neck and neck. They, nobody quite knows how this is going to go. Towards the end of it, one of the senators stands up and claims that they voted against it, even though they hadn't actually finished voting. And it was, it was a huge debacle. But in the end, Harry Byrne, God's bless Harry Byrne and his mama. She wrote him a note, just a simple note that was like, you know, hey, how are you doing? You know, the trees are, are looking nice back here. I hope you're doing well. You should call me more often. Also, make sure you vote yes for the amendment. Be a good boy. He took that note and he was carrying it in his pocket. And that was what helped him to make that decision to vote yes for the amendment. His vote was the vote that passed that amendment and gave women the vote. The celebrations were so loud that they could hear the cheering from across the street. And it went into effect in 1920. 100 years later, 2020, women are still fighting for the vote, sort of. I mean, voter suppression is a really huge issue, especially for, for poor folks, for people of color, for anybody living in a gerrymandered district, which is all of them. North Carolina, another of my previous home states. This is still a major issue. <laughs> I suspect it'll be a long fight still. Hopefully not another hundred years before we fix this, but uh, we'll see. So that's about it for this week. Next week, we're going to do a deeper dive into Ida B. Wells, who I'm really excited about. In the meantime, if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, please feel free to drop me a line. I am at timepunct.tumblr.com. You can send me an email at timepunct at gmail.com. I'm also going to be putting together a Facebook page here this week. Um, So I will put all of those links in the show notes. I hope to talk to y'all soon.